Turn in your Bibles to 1 Samuel, the 11th chapter. There was a husband and wife who had come to their pastor. And they said, we're going to get a divorce. We wanted to come to you, though, and just make sure that you approve it. <laughs> a whole lot of people just come to the pastor, you know, and they just uh, say, well, there's no feeling left in our marriage and there's nothing more we can do. And they just want the pastor to say, well, there's no feeling left and that's all you can do. Just, just you know, pack up and go home. Well, this pastor didn't say that. He said, well, if there's no, if, if there's no love, you don't just do what the Bible says. The Bible says, husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church. Husbands said, oh, no, no, no. I can't do that. That's way above my level. I, I can't, I can't do that. All right. What the pastor says, if you can't love her at that level, then the Bible also says to love your neighbor as yourself. Love her as your neighbor. No, no. It says that's still too high of a level. I can't love her even as my neighbor. So he said, all right, well, the Bible says to love your enemies. Start there. Enemies, don't we all have them? No matter where we can go, we can always find enemies. And no matter where we are in the, in, as far as kingdom life is concerned, you get involved in any kingdom and you will have enemies. There are always enemies. Jesus said you're going to have persecutions. Things are going to come against you. And there are enemies of the kingdom. If we are going to reign in life, as we started to look at last week, we are going to have enemies. And it is amazing how many stories talk about the enemies of the kingdom that maybe we've overlooked. We're going to look over here at 1 Samuel in the 11th chapter to begin with. Last week we were looking at reigning in life that we are called to reign. Romans 5 and verse 17 said, For if by the, by the one man's offense death reigned through the one, much more those who receive abundance of grace and the gift of righteousness will reign in life through the one Jesus Christ. We are called to reign in life. We have been put into position to reign. But in a position to reign, we are to rule. And as we looked at last week, not everyone who is called to reign rules the way that they should or rules over all the things that we are supposed to. But you should. There are things that we ought to rule over in our life that are, to this point are ruling us. Last week, we looked at how fear works its way in. That a lot of times we are afraid of this and afraid of that. And fear keeps these things upon us. We can become fear, fearful of a disease. We can become fearful of an accident. We can become fearful of something bad happen, happening. And this fear keeps us in bondage. We're not rolling and reigning the way we are supposed to because of fear. Over here in 1 Samuel chapter 11, this is the beginning of Saul's reign. Now, when Saul first began to reign, we, we covered some of his stories recently. We saw a lot of the bad stories of Saul, but this is actually a good one. He did have a handful of good stories. And this is one of them. In verse 1, Then Nahash the Ammonite came up and encamped against Jabesh Gilead. And all the men of Jabesh said to Nahash, Make a covenant with us and we will serve you. And Nahash the Ammonite answered them, On this condition I will make a covenant with you, that I may put out all of your right eyes and bring reproach on all Israel. How many of you are going to be thinking about this? Hmm. Then the elders of Jabesh said to him, Hold off for seven days that we may send messengers to all the territory of Israel, and then if there is no one to save us, we will come out to you. Now, I'm not sure you know who's crazier in this whole story. If you come against uh, Jabesh Gilead and they send messengers out there, will you wait for seven days till we can find out if anyone will kill you? Oh yeah, yeah, we'll wait seven days. Yeah, it's no problem. Go out there and see if you can find somebody who can go ahead and kill us. And if you can find somebody, then you know, send them along. We'll wait. I mean, isn't that what they're saying when they agree with it? And if there is no one to save us, we will come out to you. So if we can't find anybody who will come over and will you know, say that they'll kill you, then we'll come on out and let you put out our right eyes. I don't know about you, but I think if I'm the men, of, men and women of Jabesh Gilead, I'm going down with a fight. If no one else is coming, I'm going down with a fight. You're not just putting this over on me. And if I'm the people who are coming against Jabesh Gilead, I'm think, I think I'm saying no messengers are getting through us. We didn't come over here to be defeated. But anyway, I think we have poor leadership on both sides. But this is the story. This is what we're stuck with. So the messengers came to Gibeah and Saul, or Gibeah of Saul, and told the news in the hearing of the people. And all the people lifted up their voices and wept. Now, 
how much good is done by sitting around crying? Anything get changed? Nothing got changed. When they got done crying, got done all the tears, they were still with the same mess they had before. Now, I know for some of you folks, going away and have a good cry makes you feel better. But when you come out of it, you still got the same mess you had before. <laughs> crying doesn't help anything. We ought to tell that over to, there to the, uh, Crosby over there at Pittsburgh. He just needs to find out. Crying does not help. Some of you hockey fans get that one. Got some people and just want to go around and cry about this and cry about that and well the referees were bad and well this wasn't right and we didn't get a fair fair shake over the job and this regulation was just crying and crying and crying won't change anything and cry all you want to maybe it makes you feel better but it's not that you're still in the same situation the people are still lined up against Jabesh Gilly you don't rule and reign by crying now there was Saul coming before the coming before, behind, I'm sorry, behind the herd from the field. And Saul said, What troubles the people that they weep? And they told him the words of the men of Jabesh. And the Spirit of God came upon Saul when he heard this news, and his anger was greatly aroused. You will generally get more things done by being angry than by crying. Now, it may not be that you get something good done. <laughs> But generally, you're going to get more done by being angry. And this is certainly righteous anger. He was mad at these people coming against Jabesh Gilead and saying this, and he's going to get something done. So, you know, you see those little kids growing up and they have anger. That's not necessarily bad. Don't try and squash it. Try and direct that anger in the right way. Make sure that you get angry at the right things. Don't you get angry at the wrong things or for the wrong reasons. Word of God says, be angry and do not sin. God got angry, didn't He? God got angry at people for things they did. God got angry when people when they came against His people. And you don't want to get God angry. You won't like it when God gets angry. It's not pretty. We haven't seen God really angry because there's a certain word that is held off describing God's anger until the tribulation. When we get to the tribulation, that word is used. And I do not want to be here. It is going to be something else. But here... Saul gets angry. So he took a yoke of oxen and cut them in pieces and sent them throughout all the territory of Israel by the hand of messengers saying, Whoever does not go out with Saul and Samuel to battle, so it shall be done to his oxen. Well, I don't know about you, but oxen usually work better whole. When you disassemble them, they're just not as good. I got a neighbor who's disassembling some uh, one of those recreational vehicles that you use uh, I, with a jet ski. They got to get a jet ski. They have had trouble with this jet ski all since yeah, since they bought it. It's just one thing after another, and they're always out there taking it apart and doing something with it. And so they've been out there a whole lot over the last week. So I go over there and just you know talk to them a little bit. What's going on? They have the whole engine disassembled. But when you have an engine disassembled, you can put it back. But oxen, you can't put them back. Once you disassemble them, it's pretty much done. And so he's saying this to the same thing, that all your oxen, we're going to disassemble them and they will be useless. And he put, he put the fear of God in those folks. It says it right here in the Bible. And the fear of the Lord fell on the people. And they came out with one consent. Boy, you get people on one consent, that's just a hard thing to do. You get that many people on one consent, something happened. When he numbered them in Bezek, the children of Israel were 300,000 and the men of Judah 30,000. What is significant about that verse? This is just a side note, a little rabbit trail. Israel has just come under a king, right? And who has come under the king? The 12 tribes of Israel. Why are we talking about them as far as Israel and Judea? When does Israel and Judea split? After the reign of Solomon. We have Saul, we have David, and we have Solomon. Why in the world are they writing about this now? Two reasons. One, the split was already beginning. And Judah, being the ruling tribe, was 
people were feeling a little little put off by them, or just the authors were were writing later and they had they known about the split, and they uh, wrote it down in there. How many of y'all noticed that they had done that? Put that in there. Judah's already become. You'll see this more times in the in the Bible that Judah is split off from the rest. But here you can see the rest of Israel has a lot more fighting soldiers than the tribe of Judah. Now later on when you have the split, the nations seem a lot more even. But right now they're not. Verse 9, And they said to the messengers who came, Thus you shall say to the men of Jabesh-Gilead, Tomorrow, by the time the sun is hot, you shall have help. Then the messengers came and reported it to the men of Jabesh, and they were glad. How many of you would be glad if you were in Jabesh? <laughs> and my eyes aren't going to be put out. At least we have a chance to, to get on through this. Saul's coming. Therefore the men of Jabesh said, Tomorrow we will come out to you, and you may do to us whatever seems good to you. Now, they're, they're lying. They're not planning on coming out tomorrow. The, the agreement was, either we find somebody who, who helps us, or we come out. What did they do? They found somebody who would help them. And so what did they say? Well, we can't find anybody to help us, so we'll come out to you tomorrow. It is never recommended that you do that. Now understand, a whole lot of things went on in the Bible that God does not say follow after. Jonah was on a boat and jumped into the ocean. God doesn't say to go out there and do that. It's not always a good practice. So there are a lot of things out there in the Bible He's not saying to do. You know, Abraham had other women beside his uh, his wife. Other other guys multiplied wives. God says don't do that. It did not work out well for them to do so. There's a whole lot of things that are in there. This is not a good thing to do. Don't, don't think just because the whole story works out that God is saying, all right, go ahead and lie when you need to. So it was on the next day that Saul put the people in three companies and they came into the midst of the camp and in the morning watched and killed the Amorites until the heat of the day. And it happened that those who survived were scattered so that two of them were left, not two of them were left together. It almost sounds like a hunting trip. I mean, it's really just put in here like it's a hunting trip. They went out there, they had three companies, and they went out there and they just killed Ammonites until there was no two of them left together. But these are people. But people who came up against the people of God. Then the people said to Samuel, Who is it who said, Shall Saul reign over us? Who's saying this? The people. Saying this to Samuel. Who was it who was out there who said, Shall Saul reign over us? Who's going to, who said that sort of thing? Bring them in that we may put them to death. So apparently not everybody was on board with either having a king or not everyone was on board with Saul being the king. No matter what kingdom you get into, folks, there will be enemies. Now, if Saul lost this battle, what do you think these people are saying to Samuel? Who is this man that you put the reign over us? He's a loser. He's no good. Let's kill him. Because people can be fickle. But since it all worked out pretty well, they're all, all going this way. So understand this. All kingdoms seem to have enemies. Just the way kingdoms are. Kingdoms naturally have enemies. Rome was probably one of the most powerful and far-reaching kingdoms this world has known. Did Rome have enemies? Sure did. Always seemed like there was people just out beyond the fringe of what they controlled and there were enemies that were there. It's the job of kings to subdue them. That is the job of kings. Turn over to 1 Samuel chapter 8, just a few pages back. Verse 19. Nevertheless, the people refused to obey the voice of Samuel when he's telling them not to get a king. And they said, no, but we shall, but we will have a king over us. Now look at the reasons that we also may be like all the nations and that our king may judge us and go out before us and fight our battles. That the king may judge us and go out before us to fight our battles. A king is expected to judge and to fight. When you get into the role of David, David was going out and he conquered many an enemy, did he? What was the, part, what was the accusation that Absalom made against David. Against his judging. 
This is what they expected. They expected the king to judge or to at least have judges that would do this and to order that, to make sure that that procedure was, was carried out and to fight. So they want justice from their king and they want defense from their king. Now, when you get into the founding fathers of this country, they went to the Word of God to find out the purpose of government. And when they constructed the Constitution, they kept the powers of the government to within these things. You go back on through and you look at the Constitution and find that out. But I know that those men went through the Word of God very thoroughly and got most of their ideas from Scripture. Now, how do they do, how does the king do, do these kind of things as far as the fighting is concerned, as far as the defending? First off, you have to identify the enemy. Secondly, you've got to understand their methods. And third, you've got to know your weapons and strengths. You've got to identify the enemy, understand their methods, and know your weapons and strength. If you are going to be an effective king, if you're going to rule over and defend your territory well, you must know who is against you. If you don't know who is against you, they can get in and undermine your kingdom. You must understand their methods. How is it that they will attack? How will they come on, come on in? Some of you folks, back when school used to teach history, they don't teach it anymore. They seem to avoid it. They pick a couple of sections out of history and they teach that and they teach it to death. I mean, how many times have you heard the revolution taught? I mean, great section of history. But there's more. There's more beside that. And if you, back when they used to teach history, you would learn about the different countries and you learn about how the Greeks fought their battles, how the Romans fought their battles, how they changed armor, why they changed the armor, why they changed the sword, what the advantage was to a Roman sword, what the advantage was to the Greek sword, how that changed warfare when they came on in. But they, they would study the methods. How are they going to come up against us? How can we go up against them? Methods were important. You must understand the methods of the enemy. The Bible tells us a lot of the methods of the enemy as far as Satan is concerned, but people can be your enemy as well. You must understand how it is that they're going to come against you and what it is that they're going to do. Identify the enemy, understand their methods, and know your weapons and strengths. Know the weapons that the Word of God has given you. Know the strengths that God has given you. Know the strengths that are at your disposal through other people that are in the kingdom. And they can help you. That's how you're going to accomplish this. The king does not need to be skilled in every type of warfare. He can have a people in his kingdom that do that and use them. When facing the enemy, it does not help to hide. Don't go away and cry. When you face the enemy, and your enemy could be a disease, how many of you, don't have to raise your hand, inside hands, you know, just tell yourself, how many of you have faced an enemy of disease, some type of disease, some kind of sickness that has been in your mind thinking, I'm going to get that. And there's a fear that comes on, and you don't even want to go to the doctor. You want to hide from it. And you start to get a pain in an area of your body that, that could be that thing. Oh, that could be it. Oh, I, did you, I felt that. Well, I don't want to go to the doctor because the doctor will tell me that it's it and then I'll know. Oh, and then fear will... Don't avoid it. Some people think that faith in God is not going to a doctor. There's, there's nothing in the Word of God that faith in God is not going to a doctor. Faith in God is faith in God. Don't ever replace faith in God with faith in a doctor. But I tell you what, thank God for doctors. They kept you alive while your faith wasn't doing so good. Doctors are not bad. You shouldn't have to be embarrassed to come into church and say, yeah, I went to the doctor. You shouldn't have to be embarrassed about that. But, you know, it's still the best thing to do is just to be able to go and believe God. You know, Jesus laid hands on people and He got a, a whole group of people, got them all healed. Didn't hear about one doctor being involved in it. You don't need a doctor to get healed. But God wants to minister to you where your faith is. We've taught on these principles before. If your faith is to a level that, you know, just to believe that I get outright healed and that, that is a retro. I just can't do that. I'm not there. I want to be there. I know I can be there. I know the Word of God teaches that I can be there. But I'm just not there. But I can believe that if I go to the doctor and he operates on me, it'll be successful. 
Well, then take that. At least take something that you can grow your faith on and then grow off to the next level. And eventually you can get to that spot where, you know what? I, they say I have a tumor. I just believe it's going to die. Just be gone. And to- be totally in faith and believe in God that that's what's going to happen. Do things that are going to cause your faith to grow. Don't set the bar so high that I have to get there. And if I don't, that's not necessarily the way that you want to go. But a lot of people will, will have this expectation and they run and hide from their illness. They run and hide from the thing that's affecting them. You don't need to do that. Don't run and hide. Get out there and take it on. You can go to the doctor and the doctor can do an x-ray or, or a scan or whatever it is that doctors do to figure out what's going on with you. And they'll tell you, well, all right, you got this, this, and this. All right, thanks, doc. And you can go from there and, Father God, we got this, this, and this. Now, how am I... How, what's the Word of God say about this? You can dig into the Word of God find out what the Word of God has to say for you. And then you're going back to the doctor. How am I doing now? Wow, it's, it's getting better. I don't know why. What did you do? Doctors are not against your faith. Don't look at them that way. I'm not telling you that you have to run to the doctor every time something goes wrong either. Just do something that's going to build up your faith, not something that's going to tear it down. Too many times we just get that idea and we just have to accept the ultimate thing well, if God doesn't heal me, I'll just die. Don't need to get to that spot either. But I want to notice what, Saul hap- what happened with Saul here. Saul hears the news that the enemy has come against his, his, some of his people. He hears that news and he gets angry. And what comes upon him? The anointing of God. The anointing of God came on to help him do what he was called to do, which as a king is judge and fight battles. And the anointing came on him to fight this battle. You know the anointing can come on you as a king and priest called by God. New Testament, we're all called to be kings and priests. You're king of your kingdom. The anointing can come upon you to fight your battle. How many of y'all know that's easier? After we tried to relate, you know, what is the anointing? How are you describe the anointing? And the only way I've ever heard it and tried to describe it myself is if you get into the ocean. How many have ever been in the ocean where you can't touch? And if you swim in the ocean, the ocean has a lot of currents. And if you swim in the ocean, you're fighting against those currents. And normally in a pool, you can cover a lot more territory. Sometimes you can swim for a half hour and not move in the ocean. You just stayed absolutely still. You swam this way, but the lifeguard station stayed right there, never moved at all. That's that can be tough. That's what the ocean is about though. The ocean you you face currents. But if you get into a wave and you let that wave carry you, you don't have to swim at all and you are moving in the ocean. That's the anointing. That anointing just picks you up, carries you on, empowers you from a force that is outside yourself, but it transfers it all into you and you are just being moved along by this force. That is the anointing. It's a whole lot easier to fight the enemy when that comes upon you. So when you are out there to fight a battle in your own life against disease, against fear, against whatever it might be, the anointing of God is there to help you fight the battle and to win. But sometimes you just need to get mad. A lot of people get afraid of sickness and disease. They don't get mad at it. They get afraid. If Saul heard about Jabesh Gilead being attacked and he got afraid, would he be doing the same things? No, he wouldn't be. He, he's, he is not a man right now that is moving in fear. He is a man who's, who, I am angry. How dare you do this? When David came against Goliath, is he moving in fear? No, he's angry. How dare you come against the people of the Lord and say this about them? He's angry. He's How dare you do this? He's mad. When Jesus goes into the temple, is he angry? Yes. Yeah, and he does some stuff in there, doesn't he? Yes. <laughs> you need to sometimes just get mad at the enemy. That enemy tries to put sickness on you. I don't care if it's just a headache, a cold. You ought to sometimes just, instead of just complacent, ah, I got a cold. I guess, you know, in a couple of days this thing will go away, but I'm just going to believe God and, and see if I can speed it up some. No, get mad. How dare you come against me? 
in this way. Now, we've taught you this before, but when the New Testament principle came on that you are the temple of God, that the Holy of Holies, the veil was rent, the Holy of Holies was opened up, the Spirit of God was put inside of you, you became the temple of God, the Holy of Holies. Can any unclean thing reside in the Holy of Holies? What happened to a priest who was unholy, who had not done the proper cleansing and sacrifices, who walked into the Holy of Holies? He died. We told you the story before. That the, that the priests, they had robes and had bells on the bottoms of them. And a rope was tied to their ankle. Because as long as you heard tinkle, 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 then everything is okay. But if you heard tinkle, 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 thud, and then you don't hear anything more, then you grab the rope and you pull the dead priest out. He didn't make it. Because you can't just go in and get him. So they would tie a rope to the ankle. Could you imagine being the high priest? You got your rope on? I don't need to get the rope on. Because <laughs> who's going to go in and get you? So they had the rope on and they would. I'm sure that they must have sometime pulled some high priest out. So if the high priest, who was a servant of God, worshipped God, but had some unclean thing in him, he didn't cover up or didn't do something, whatever it might have been, if they walk into the Holy of Holies and die, what should happen to the disease germs that come into your body? Die! Get mad! Angry! You have no right to be in this body! And let that anointing of God come on you because He's there to help you fight this battle. You are there to rule the kingdom. Rule it. We've been called to rule and reign. Not just to sit back complacently and take whatever comes our way and just make the best of it. I know, whatever situation I am, they're, they're in to give thanks. It's not what that verse is talking about. Be bold. When facing the enemy, we must be bold. Be bold. Saul is bold. He goes, grabs an oxen, cuts it up, sends it out through the territories of Israel, and said, I'm going to do this to your oxen if you don't come along. Okay, we're coming. And then, people were so excited about what happened. They said, who said that Saul should not reign over us? Who, who said, let's go get them guys? And Saul says, no, 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 no. We didn't read this part, this part, but this is what he goes on to say. No, no, no. This is not a day of death and so forth. This is a day of celebration. You leave him alone. That was the old Saul. That Saul changed pretty quickly. Turn over to Luke chapter 19, verse 11. Parable similar to one we covered a few weeks ago, but it is different. Now as they heard these things, he spoke another parable. As he heard what things? He's talking about Zacchaeus going over to his house and the things that were involved with that. What we had in that story when we covered that sometime before. That you had a lot of people, stuck up leaders, who expected Jesus to come on over and expected Jesus to act a certain way. And Zacchaeus is just hungry for the Word of God. Just hungry to get there in front of him had a whole different attitude about it. Now, as I heard these things, he spoke another parable. Here's the reason. There's always a reason for a parable. If you understand the reason for the parable, you can understand the parable. A lot of times people don't understand the reason for the parable and they come up with some crazy mixed up meanings about the parable. Best example of that is the parable of the mustard seed. How many have ever heard people teach you, and you've been around here for a while, you all know this already, people try to teach you, yes, your faith is like a mustard seed, just a little planted mustard seed growing inside you, that mustard seed will become a big, powerful tree. And that's what they try and teach you. They didn't understand the purpose of the parable. If you do not understand the purpose of the parable, you will get a wrong meaning. Jesus did not teach you that your faith is like a little bitty mustard seed, smallest seed in the world, smallest seed that's out there, but boy, when it's take root, it's just going to become a great, huge tree and the birds will come and make their nest in it. That's not what he... He's not teaching you that. Because first off, folks, what is a mustard plant? It's an herb. It's a bush. It is not a tree. There is no mustard tree. There's a mustard bush or a mustard herb, but there's no mustard tree. So what he is telling you 
is that the kingdom of God is like a mustard seed that got planted into the ground and became something it was never intended to be. And if you look at that parable, it's sandwiched between a whole bunch of other negative ones that are talking about negative aspects of the kingdom. And then he goes on and he says, and the birds come and make their nest in it. How many of you sounds like, that sounds like a nice hallmark picture. <laughs> birds coming and making their nests in the tree. When Jesus uses birds in parables, are they good or bad? bad. You all know, we've been around here for a while. We told you before, birds are bad. Birds are bad. He didn't say cats are bad. Maybe could have, but he didn't. He said birds are bad. Birds are bad. In parables, birds are bad. What happens when we have the sower sowing the word? What comes along to eat them up? Birds. Birds are bad. Birds are not good. When Jesus uses birds, birds are bad. So you have a mustard seed that becomes something that was never intended to be, which is a tree. You have birds which are bad, which eat the good seed coming and nesting in the mustard tree. What do you have? A kingdom of God that became something it was never intended to be, that became more powerful, did things it was never intended, exerted power, and became a home for things that were enemies to the Word of God. It described the Middle Ages to a T. Described it wonderfully. And he's saying this is not what it was intended to be. But people come out and you know, have all these nice meanings out of the thing and all that sort of stuff anyway. And that's just another side note. We did, uh, we're probably due to do it again here sometime soon, but we went through the, the New Testament, went through all the parables and looked at the context. You must get into the context of anything that Jesus teaches if you're going to understand what he was teaching. Because too many people want to take a verse here and there and make it say all kinds of stuff and just like that stuff we were getting to Wednesday that Ethel was talking about. We got a lot of people doing binding and loosing that the Word of God never told us to do. Do what the Word of God told you to do, not what these people, I bind this, I loose that, that's ridiculous. You find, I told you, we told you before, if it's in the Word of God, it's going to be plain. And we went over these principles again on Wednesday. It's going to be demonstrated. I love that one. If you are supposed to do something, there's somebody else in the Word of God who did it. In fact, there's a whole lot of people in the Word of God who did it. If you cannot find anyone in the Word of God who did it the way you're told to be doing it, probably you're being told wrong. The Word of God is filled with examples. I never one time found anybody standing there saying, I bind you, devil! Never one time found that in the Word of God. I find it in people's prayers nowadays, but I don't find it in the Word of God. But anyway, that's what it was Wednesday we were getting into that. We're not going to get into it again tonight. Today. Context is important. So here's the purpose. He spoke another parable because he was near Jerusalem and because they thought the kingdom of God would appear immediately. So what is the purpose of this parable? About the timing of the kingdom of God. Because they thought it would come immediately. And apparently he has a different thinking on when the timing of the kingdom of God would be coming. And so this is his purpose for teaching it. Therefore he said, a certain nobleman went into a country, to a, into a far country to receive for himself a kingdom and to return. Folks, that is the ministry of Jesus. He came into this earth. He set up a kingdom here, but then went, because he's a nobleman, a nobleman, you cannot be a nobleman without having some type of kingdom going on there. He's a nobleman. So he has servants. He has a kingdom that's here. He has citizens in the kingdom. They're mentioned in there as well. And he goes to a far place to receive a kingdom and to return. What does he do? He goes to a far place, heaven, to receive a kingdom and to bring that kingdom back down here to earth. He's just describing what's going to, what he's doing. So he called ten of his servants, delivered to them ten minas, and said to them, do business till I come. But his citizens hated him. And sent a delegation after him saying, we will not have this man to reign over us. Isn't this interesting how much is par parallels what Saul went through? That Saul had people who hated him. Who didn't want him to be king. And Jesus puts it right into the parable. There were, I mean, really when you look at this parable, why does he put this in here? He just kind of tacks it on. Because Jesus always does that. No, there's a reason for it. Do business till I come. But his citizens hated him and sent a delegation after him saying, we will not have this man to reign over us. 
So they weren't just content to be angry that he was reigning over them. They sent delegations after him to make sure that he was he would know we don't want this. There's enemies within the kingdom. There's enemies here. Jesus gives the parable about the coming kingdom because they thought it was imminent. They thought it was coming just just now. And apparently his idea on the timing was different. So he gives them this parable so they have a picture of it. There's enemies in the kingdom. So he's saying, he's laying this out for you so that you know there are enemies, there are people in the kingdom. Citizens, they're called. Citizens who don't want this man to reign over them. But he takes ten of his servants. Understand, there's citizens and there are servants in this nobleman's kingdom. He takes ten of his servants and he gives each of them a mina. And he says to them, do business till I come. Now when he says that, do business till I come, who's he doing, who are they doing business with? The people in the kingdom. Some of which like the nobleman and some of which do not. Does that describe your situation? Are you not doing business for God in this kingdom with people who like Him and people who do not like Him? Now, how many of you have ever wanted to use it as an excuse when you get to God? God, I tried to work for your kingdom. I tried to multiply things and do things, but everybody hates you. So it was that when He returned, having received the kingdom, He then commanded these servants to whom He had given the money to be called to Him that he might know how much every man had gained by trading. Then came the first, saying, Master, your mina has earned ten minas. And he said to him, Well done, good and faith, or good servant, because you were faithful in very little, have authority over ten cities. And the second came, saying, Master, your mina has earned five minas. Likewise, he said to him, You also be over five cities. And the other came, saying, Master, here is your mina, which I have kept put away in a handkerchief, for I have feared you, because you are a austere man. You collect what you did not deposit and reap what you did not sow. And he said to him, Out of your own mouth I will judge you, you wicked servant. You knew that I was an austere man, collecting where I did not deposit and reaping where I did not sow. Why then did you not put my money in the bank, that at my coming I might have collected it with interest? And he said to those who stood by, Take the miner from him and give it to him who has ten miners. But they said to him, Master, he has ten miners. For I say to you that to everyone who has that to everyone who has will be given and from him who does not have, even what he has will be taken away from him. So here's the parable. You'll see a lot of similarities to the other ones we went over with the talents. Just this whole third servant that's being talked about, it's almost identical except he put his in a handkerchief instead of in the ground. But he had the same viewpoint of the master and he judged him out of his own viewpoint of the master and he even said the same thing. Why don't you give it to the bank? That's when we talked about ownership and things of that nature. But in the parable of the talents, everyone got different things. But the ones who were productive yielded the same amount. The one who had five yielded five. The one who had two yielded. The one who had one buried it. Here you have everyone getting one. He had ten servants. We're only talking about three of them. But one of them came and he earned ten. The yields are different on here. And there are two things that you focus on with these parables. First off, there are some areas of what God has given that vary from one person to another. There are some things that God gives to His servants that are all the same. With what we are given that is the same, our yield will determine our reward. On what we are given that is different, it is not so much our yield, it is our faithfulness in working with what we have. I am not required to do what a person who had two if I was only given one. If I was given two, I'm not required to have the same thing that one was given five. So that's the difference in, in the two. But notice this. He wants to receive a kingdom. He has citizens in the kingdom that are against him. Look at the last verse. Verse 27. But bring here those members of mine who did not want me to reign over them and slay them before me. Is he dealing with enemies in the kingdom? He sure does, but he waits till the end. He gives them all that time to change their mind. And when he comes on back and they still want to be against him, he says, all right, you take care of them. Enemies are in the kingdom. You will have enemies in the kingdom. Some of them will be people. Some of them will be sickness and disease. Some of it will be poverty. 
Some of it will be fear. You have enemies that are in the kingdom. How will you deal with your enemies? Will you run away and hide? Will you sit and wait for Saul to come along and take care of your battle for you? Or will you be the one who reigns and rules? We have been called to be kings and priests. We have been called into that ministry. You need to rule over your life. If fear comes into your life and causes you to, to not do things, not move in certain areas, you need to take charge of that. If hate begins to come into your life and you begin to hate this one and hate that one, you need to rule over that hate. If the wrong kind of anger comes into your life, you need to rule over that anger. I will not let that kind of anger rule in me. The Word of God says, be angry and do not sin. That is the wrong kind of anger. I'm not going to have that. Whatever it is that is coming into you, you must rule and reign. If you walk in, in, in ways, you're not walking in love the way that you should, it's going to affect your prayer life. It's going to affect the things that are going on with you. Make sure that you straighten it out. Rule and reign with Him. This parable seems to focus more on what they did than with what they received. Because they all received the same. There are some areas in our Christian walk, folks, we have all received the same thing. We all received a measure of faith. What did you do with your measure of faith? We all received forgiveness and salvation. What did you do with that? We all received the basic understanding of the kingdom of God when we got born again. What did you do with that? Did you share it with anyone else? Every earthly kingdom seems to have enemies. You're going to have a kingdom. God has called you to be a king, called you to be a priest. You're going to have a kingdom. You will have enemies within that kingdom. You've got to deal with them. Enemies are determined to undermine you. That's one way enemies like to get in there. They like to undermine you. They like to get you to be maybe put your confidence in them, but then all the while they're working against you. They like to neutralize you. Get you to where you can't do anything. You're ineffective. They neutralize you. And third, they want to defeat you. A lot of times they're content with just one of these things. They undermine you, neutralize you, or defeat you. But that's what they are working to do. They are trying to do these things. Sickness and disease is working to defeat you. It's working to neutralize you. It wants to undermine your effectiveness. How many of your days have ever been affected because of sickness and disease? How many of you have been neutralized on certain days because of sickness and disease from doing the things that you would normally do? That's an enemy. How many of you have been undermined, neutralized, or even defeated by fear in your life? We are to rule over that. Not let that, that kind of thing go on. Don't let this stuff happen. If something is out in your life trying to undermine you, trying to neutralize you, trying to defeat you, it is an enemy. Treat it as such. Defeat it. Take the weapons that God has given you and focus them against this thing. Do not let that thing defeat you. If we are going to rule and reign over what we are given, we will need to learn to rule the enemies as well. Rule over the enemies. Don't let the enemies rule over you. You rule over them. We're going to look at more examples in the weeks to come of people who ruled. People who went from a weak state to a strong state. What did they do? All of us, as we are facing enemies, there are some enemies that seem to get hold of us more. Some folks seem to battle poverty more or battle money situations more. Some people seem to battle sickness situations more. Some people battle fear situations more. Some people battle unforgiveness situations more. Whatever it might be, whatever it is that you battle against, the devil wants to find out where is your weakness? What can we get into? How can we get into your life? How can we neutralize you? What can we do? And you need to have the authority. You need to have the, the, the lookout on this to get mad and get angry. How dare you? Dare you do this to me? I want you to get that, that mentality of a free safety in football. Middle linebacker. An end. Defensive end. Who, they got the offense has the ball. 
and they want to do something with that ball. And what do they say? Well, if you, I please don't come this way. Don't come over here. I don't. What do they say? Come on, come on. Oh, okay. And what's the offense saying all the whole time? We're going to beat you. We're going to get it. We're going. Mm. They get that mentality. But if you get that timid mentality that says, "I can't do it. I'm going to lose. I'm battling sickness and disease." Aunt Sophie, she died. I think I'm going to die too. Oh man, and we're just in fear. We find out other Christians and they tell you, well, you know, you never know if it's God's will for you to be healed or not. It might be God's will that you be sick and that you learn something from this sickness. Glory be to God. That's an enemy. That is an enemy trying to work its way in. It's against the knowledge of God. It's ignorance of the Word of God. And if you let it in, You've neutralized yourself. Don't buy into that. It sounds good. It sounds spiritual. It is wrong. Real easy to prove from the Word of God. Find one person, because Jesus ministered to a whole host of people. Whole multitudes of people, and it says He healed half of them. How many? Three quarters of them. Most of them. Nearly all. All of them. How is it that Jesus could come to huge multitudes and heal all of them and not find a single one whose will it was for God to, to have them stay sick? Not a single one. And yet we can have small groups of people and all of them, God wants sick. How is that possible? But you see, going for being healed is a battle. And I'd rather just hide from that battle. I'd rather just... Uh, Finances, that's a battle. That's a, I'd rather just hide from that battle. No, I just don't. Finances is a battle. Fear, that's a battle. I'd rather just hide from it. I'd rather just have the light on. If I had the light on, I'm not thinking about being in fear. Even though it's dark out, i got the light on. There's no fear. I'm alright, just don't turn that light off. It's easier, it's easier to hide than it is to deal. Deal with the enemy. And be bold with them. If he's uh, keeping you from sleeping at night because of some fear or something that's coming upon you, get up. Get nasty with him. He's getting nasty with you. You get in there and say, Devil, you are not getting into my thoughts. I am not entertaining that thought. I am healed. I am free from fear. I am. That bill is paid. My job is safe. Whatever it is that you need, whatever fear that's coming on in, that's trying to knock on the door, saying, God's not your provider. God's not taking care of you. God's not your healer. Whatever it might be. Get over there. No, He is. He is certainly my healer. He is my forgiver. He is the one who put His love on the inside of me. I can love anybody I need to. And you get downright indignant. How dare you tell me that I can't? How dare Dare you tell me that I must retain that sickness and disease when Jesus Christ healed me from all sickness and disease and He set me free from all sin. He didn't do half the sin. He did all sin. All of it. How many of you know when Jesus died on the cross there was no such thing as software piracy? That was not illegal. But He died for that sin too. Took care of it all. I don't care if they got some new strain of flu. Well, that wasn't around when Jesus was here. It don't matter. He did them. He died for them all. All. Everyone. We're free from all of them. We're free from half of our fears. Most of them. Nearly all of them. All but one. <laughs> all of them. See, God, God does things in, in alls. It's all. It's all or nothing with God. All of it. If God wants it, He wants it all. Never find God buying half of, half a thing. He wants it all. He bought it all. He bought you. He paid for all your, 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 your sin. Redeemed you from all your sicknesses and disease. Didn't matter if that disease wasn't even around when Jesus died. It's all done. All done. He bore it in His body. If He bore it in His body, you don't need to bear it in yours. And you need to stay around people who keep telling you that. Because you get around people who don't tell you that, it's real easy to fall into this thing. Well, I guess I just have to bear it. 
I don't want to bother Jesus. He's got a whole lot on his plate and this is just a little tiny sickness and disease. I mean, it might kill me, but it might not. I might be okay. Man. This is the Jesus who counts the hairs on your head. If he's got time on his hands to count the hairs of your head, I don't have time to count your hairs. You got time to do that with people? No. Jesus has time to count the hairs in your head. One falls out, he knows it. If he's taking mind of your hairs, how much more is he going to be taking mind of your sickness and disease, your fears, your situations with finances, the enemies that would come against you, the people that would speak evil against you at work, the people who would have nothing but evil for you? Do you think he is mindful of them? Get his mindset on it and get angry and get mad. You are not putting that on me. I will not take that. That is not mine. What is in the Word of God? This is mine. Jesus healed them from all, all of their diseases. All. all. Jesus is mindful of all, all of your needs. Not half of them. He's mindful of all of your needs before you even pray, He says. Glory to God. Let's stand up. Father, how we thank You and how we give You praise. You are the great God. The God who takes care of all Whatever it is that we face, you took care of all. All of our fears. All of our sickness and disease. All of our sin. All of our enemies. Everything that would come against us, you have taken care of it. We have been called to rule and to reign by the authority of Jesus. By what He did. Father God, we will rule and reign in this life. We will be mindful that we are not called to be ruled by these things that you have redeemed us from. But we are called to rule and to reign. Help us, Father, to continue renewing our mind on what your word says. And every time we get a report that is different, we go back to your word. What's the word say? I know that Aunt Sophie died, but what's the word say? I know that so-and-so lives in fear, but what's the word say? What's it say here? What's, what is this telling me? We want to be mindful of those things that are of you. And Father, we thank you for it. We give you the praise and the glory. You are the great God. <laughs> and we serve you. We are not only citizens in your kingdom. We're your servants. Called into positions of sons. Oh, Father, we thank you for it. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.